Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. So we are in a new year now and uh, just past the Christmas season. And so I want to start with some Christmas trivia for you. And I don't want you to say anything out loud, but I do want you to raise your hand for this if you can find the will to do so. Uh, My question is this. If you could put the picture up there, please. Which of these is a manger? All right. A is, you know, like a cradle. B is like the whole stable. You, you sung the song, Away in a Manger. Which of these is a manger? All right, you ready to vote? All right, if you think a manger is A, raise your hand. If you think a manger is B, raise your hand. All right. Well, you'd be happy to know that uh, I have gone to church since I was a baby. I sing away in the major probably over a thousand times in church. I have been a Christian for 25 years. I've gone to seminary. I've learned Greek and Hebrew. I've memorized outlines of every book of the Bible. And just last month, I found out what a manger was. And in case you don't know, the definition of a, of a manger is that it is a long open box or trough for horses or cattle to eat in. A is a manger and not B. I did not know that the first 45 years of my life. Somehow I just figured it out. I was debating this with Pastor David and Pastor Spencer. I'm like, no, A is a manger, not B. They're like, no, no, no. I'm sorry, I had the other way around, right? I didn't know for 45 years of my life. And you're probably thinking, how could you possibly be a pastor? And I wonder that question all the time. And all I have to say is like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. It's just, it's just the way it is. But, you know, it's amazing how you can be so sure of something for 45 years and be completely wrong. And if it has to do with a manger, well, that is embarrassing, but it's not that big of a deal. By the way, just so you know, it was like a 50-50 split in here. So I'm not the only one who was deceived. Not knowing what a manger is, is is not a big deal. But what is a bigger deal is if we don't know what a Christian is. The first 18 years of my life, I thought I knew what a Christian was. I thought I was a Christian. I was going to church. I was singing songs. I was doing communion. All those types of things. But I wasn't a Christian. I didn't even know what a Christian was. What about you? Do you know what a Christian is? Would you consider yourself a Christian? How do you know if you're a Christian? If, if you wanted to become a Christian, how do you become a Christian? It's a really great question to start the new year with. And it's a really big question with lots of implications for our life in this world, but also for eternity. 
If you would open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, if you are in the red Bible in the seat in front of you, you'll need a Bible if you don't have one. Make sure you grab one. Uh, it is page 986 in the red Bible. Uh, page 986. Pastor David did a great job last week introducing us to the city of Thessalonica. Uh, we heard about how Paul had visited there on one of his missionary journeys, and as he preached the good news of the gospel, there were many Jews who came to faith in Christ, and because of that, other Jews were very upset. Uh, his life was threatened, and he was chased out of town. Uh, Paul goes on with his missionary journeys, and, and he actually sends Timothy back to check on the people, the Christians in Thessalonica, and he gets a report back from them, and in response, he writes this letter of 1 Thessalonians. And so it happens about a year after Paul's original visit to Thessalonica, excuse me. And so he is writing back to them uh, to encourage them in their faith, uh, but also to correct some things that they're misguided on. And he starts his letter, as we will see, with a word of thanksgiving and encouragement and affirming uh, that they really are Christians. And so let's read together uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through the first part of verse 5. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that we get to study your word, that you preserve this for us, for our instruction, for our edification, for our good. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply it to our hearts and our lives, transform us, and the joy of our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. My dad has a saying, he likes to say, uh, sitting in church does not make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. We're well, here today sitting in a church, but are you a Christian? Maybe, maybe you don't think you are a Christian and you're not. Maybe you are, think you are a Christian and you are, or maybe, maybe you think you are a Christian and you're not, and you just don't know. And so there's three things I want to look at from today's passage. One is who are Christians? Like what is their identity? Second is how are Christians? What are characteristics of people that are true Christians? The third is why are Christians? How do Christians become Christians? Okay, so those are the three things. Who are Christians? How are Christians? And why are Christians? First, who are Christians? What is their identity. Now, there is a lot of ways to answer this from Scripture, but I just want to focus on the first two verses from the Apostle Paul here. So look at verse 1 and 2 with me again. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Let's pause there. So the first thing that we see is that the Christians are called the church. 
Okay, now the word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which is a compound word, which means from ek and from kaleo. And ek means from or out from, and kaleo means to be called out. Okay, and so ekklesia means those who have been called out from the world and called together as the church. Oftentimes, this word ekklesia, when it's not uh, translated as church, it's simply translated as an assembly. It is a gathering together of people. And so Christians are those who have been called out of the world, but also called into a community of believers. And this is important because there are many people today uh, who think that they can be Christians without being connected to the church. Uh, They will say things like, well, nature is my church. I go for long walks. I listen to music. I listen to sermons. And that is my church. But it's not true. You see, Christians are like soccer players. They're not like golfers. You see, someone can say, I am a golfer, and they go golf by themselves, and they are legitimately a golfer. But if someone says, I'm a soccer player, and, and you say, oh, what team do you play for? And they say, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't play with teams. Like, I just play soccer by myself, just me. You would conclude, you're not a soccer player, right? Soccer players gotta have a team, a golfer doesn't. Christians are like soccer players. They're not like golfers. You are called together in a community and assembly. It is not a solo sport. That's one reason why small groups are so important here. I mean, if you read any of Paul's letters, the majority of his commands just assumes that you're a part of a community of believers. He calls us to love and serve one another in the church, to bear one another's burdens, to be reconciled to one another. And we cannot do those things if we simply live in isolation. Nor can we do those by simply watching other people do church on Sunday morning, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. A churchless Christian is an oxymoron. And so who are Christians? They're the church, the the gathered ones, the assembly, the community of believers. The second thing we see here is not only collectively are are they the assembly of believers, but they are also a gift from God. Look at verse two with me. Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Why is Paul so enthusiastic about thanking God for the Thessalonian Christians? Is it because they were the best Christians in the world? It wasn't. As we continue to go on in the later, and later in this, this, uh, this uh, book, we'll see that they had a lot of problems. Um, there were some Christians in the church, many Christians in the church who got lazy who didn't want to work, who simply wanted to mooch off of the rich Christians. There were other Christians in the church that brought all of their sexual deviance into their Christianity and were continuing to carry them out as if nothing had changed. Some of them were angry because they thought Jesus was supposed to have returned by now, and he hasn't. The Thessalonian church was a messed up church, just like Jacob's Well Church. And yet we see Paul's heart for these Christians Again, verse three, we give thanks to our God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Paul knows their mess. He knows their immaturity. He knows their sin struggles. And yet he gives thanks for them always in all of his prayers. I love the Tim Keller quote. He says, you know, it is so easy to love humanity, but it is so hard to love humans. Right, like it's so easy to love a person on the other side of the world that you see in a video, but it's very hard to love the people that you live with. It's hard to love the people that you work with. 
It's even hard to love the people that you worship with if you are in a tight-knit community. Christian, do you focus on your strengths and everyone else's weaknesses and say, why do I put up with them? Do you focus on giving thanks to God for the evidences of his grace and redemption in one another's lives or do you obsess over another person's spiritual deficiencies? Do you distance yourself from certain people because they are too clicky or too political or too superficial or too uncool or too needy? Or do you give thanks to God for his work in their lives and embrace them with gratitude and love? And so who are Christians? Again, there's a lot of ways to define this, but what we see in this passage is Christians are gathered ones. They come together, they assemble as the church, but they are also a gift to one another that we're called to give thanks to God for. So that's who are Christians, according to what Paul says here. Secondly is how are Christians? In other words, what what characteristics are true of true Christians? You see, all people groups have certain characteristics, right? Like I'm from Missouri, and you may not know this, but Wisconsinites have certain characteristics that is unique to Wisconsin, or at least to the northern area. Like Wisconsinites know what a bubbler is. I never heard of that until I started dating my wife, Trisha, right? Wisconsinites go to these things called supper clubs. Again, never heard of them. Wisconsinites, like it's totally normal to skip work and to skip school to go hunting. Like that is just bizarre to me, but that's a Wisconsin thing, right? Wisconsinites eat cheese curds and they wear shorts and sandals when it's 25 degrees or higher outside, right? That is a Wisconsin thing. Every people group has certain characteristics. And so the question is, what are the characteristics of true Christians? What are the universal characteristics of Christians? And Paul lists out three here in verse three, which is very convenient. But look here in verse three. He says, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The three characteristics that Paul lists out in verse three, he lists out in many other letters that he has written. The characteristics of Christians are faith, hope, and love. Does that sound familiar? Faith, hope, and love. And love. Not that we would do any of these perfectly because we don't, but that we would be characterized by faith, hope, and love. Now, Paul actually puts some flesh on these descriptions. And so I want to look at them quickly here, uh, if we could. So, first, uh, he says Christians are characterized by their work of faith. Now, if you know the uniqueness of the gospel that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works, maybe this makes you a little bit nervous. Um, But we know from the scriptures. That, that we are not saved by our good works, but we are always saved unto good works. Saving faith always produces good works. Martin Luther says it this way. He says this. He says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Let me read that again. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. In other words, if we have saving faith, it will always produce fruit. It will always produce good works. It will always be active and alive and and, and something is happening. It doesn't just sit dormant and dead. And so you may be wondering, man, do, do I have those characteristics? Do I have the work of faith? Maybe you're not sure. 
And so let me ask you this. If, if, if you consider yourself to be a Christian, say, I'm no longer a Christian, would your life look drastically different? Because the difference there is, is the work of faith. To put it another way, are there parts of your life that seem silly or foolish to non-Christian? Those are the works of faith. Works of faith are the ways Christians live their life that are completely irrational, that don't make sense unless the gospel is true. Like sharing Jesus with others. Like giving money to missionaries. Like forgiving those who have wronged you. Like loving those who have hated you. Like giving to those who can give nothing to you or living ethically with hope and joy. You know, the early church was characterized as those who lived generously, those who had chastity, and those who did justly. That's what characterized Christians. Those are the works of faith that characterize a Christian. So how is a Christian? A a, A Christian is characterized by work of faith, not perfectly, but it characterizes us, right? But secondly, labor of love. The term Paul uses here for labor is different than the word he uses for work and work of faith. This term labor stresses like really hard work, okay? And and I appreciate that he does this because, you know what, loving people is really hard work, isn't it? Uh, It's hard to love people that you know well. Again, it's easy to love people you don't know very well. It's hard to love people that you know well. It's hard to love people in the church because the church is full of people that are hypocrites and sinners and messy, to love one another is a labor. And it means that you have to know them and they have to know you. It means you have to have hard conversations with them and forgive them and bless them. You see, loving someone is, is more than warm fuzzies. Loving someone is committing yourself to that other person in sickness and in health. Not just in marriage, but saying, listen, I am for you no matter what. I am committed to our relationship to one another. A Christian is characterized by laboring in love for God and for those in the church. Third, he says they're characterized by a steadfastness of hope. I think Paul puts this one last for a few reasons. Number one, the Christians in Thessalonica were being persecuted regularly. Some of them were even being killed for their faith. It was very hard to be a Christian in Thessalonica. But the other reason is because a lot of Paul's focus in the letter of 1 Thessalonians is on the second coming of Jesus. And so he, he focuses them at this last characteristic on hope. And you see, for a Christian, hope is not just wishful thinking like, man, like I hope it's 70 tomorrow or, you know, I hope the Packers win today. That's, that's wishful thinking. For a Christian, hope is a certain confident expectation that everything is in the hands of God today, tomorrow, and forever. And so Christian hope is a steadfast hope. It doesn't waver on how things Go. And for these Thessalonians Christians who were being killed for their faith, steadfast hope looked like staying true and staying committed to Jesus, even at the threat of the sword. I have seen so many people here at Jacob's Well Church uh, with steadfast hope, and it's so encouraging to me and convicting to me. You know, I've seen so many here who've been stricken with cancer, and, and they say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I've seen steadfast hope of those who are on verge of losing their business, and they say, you know what? God is in control. I've seen steadfast hope in those who have buried their child and yet said through tears, God is still good. Christians are characterized 
by steadfast hope. Who are Christians? There are a lot of things. But Paul says they are the church and they are a gift to you, to one another. How are Christians? What are their characteristics? Their faith works. It it acts out. They labor in loving one another and their hope is steadfast. Now that would be perfect. Not that we'd be perfect in any of these, but these would characterize our lives. So finally, why are Christians? Why are Christians Christians? How does one become a Christian? The answer that Paul gives to us may not make you very happy or comfortable, but it is good news. Look at verse four with me. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full convictions. So why are Christian Christians? First and foremost, because they are loved by God. Paul addresses them, brothers loved by God. You see the depth of God's commitment and love in this language, this this language of adoption, that you have been adopted as a son and a daughter of God. And so you are brothers and sisters with one another. You are his precious child that he has chosen to adopt you into his family. You see, this means that what primarily makes someone a Christian is not their love for God, although that is important, but it is God's love for them. This is such good news for people like me because to be honest, if, if my salvation, if my Christianity was up to my love for God, I'd be in a lot of trouble. My love for God is fickle, it is moody, it is often apathetic. If that is the foundation of my relationship with God, I would be in and out of salvation 50 times a day. But the good news is the reason that I'm a Christian and I am still a Christian and I will always be a Christian is because I have been loved by God. And we know this because God has sent his one and only son into the world to save sinners. Christians are Christians because they are loved by God, but also because they are chosen by God. That's what Paul says here in verse four. Don't throw rocks at me. Look, says, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. Again, this language makes people very uncomfortable, but you need to understand that Paul did not write this to create theological debates in coffee shops in America in the 21st century. That's not why he wrote it. Paul wrote this as good news to a persecuted and suffering and hurting church. People who are wondering, where is God in all of this? Isn't he coming back? Does God even care about me anymore? And Paul's saying, don't forget. Don't forget, God has chosen you. He has set his love upon you. You are his child. You belong to him. Rest and rejoice in the unconditional, unrelenting, unfailing love of God for you. You know, recently someone asked me, they said, hey, when we get saved, do we say yes to God? I said, of course we do. But the question is this, did God give you a new heart to say yes to him? Or did you say yes to him and then he gave you a new heart? Like, well, it was the first. And I think that's most of our experiences, right? I would have never chosen God. To be honest with you, I didn't like God all that much the first 18 years of my life. But God has chosen me and brought me to himself. You know, one of the greatest encouragements, I shared this at the officer retreat this past 
uh, this past weekend, yesterday, day before, is that more and more people have come to faith in Christ at Jacobsville Church than ever before in the history of our church that I'm aware of. And what's so amazing about people coming to church and coming to faith in Christ is it's not been a part of our evangelism programs. It's been people driving by the church saying, we haven't been to church in a while. Let's go to that church. Or someone's kid like, I really want to go to church. And then people come to church like, because God has chosen them and has brought them to himself. Friends, God's choosing is not usually something I, I lead with when I'm telling the good news of Jesus with something, but it's certainly not something we need to be ashamed of. It's something that we should celebrate. We see that's what Paul does. In Ephesians chapter one, verse three through seven, this is what he says. He says, and you can hear, this is one long run on, so he's just ecstatic. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And here it is. Even as he chose us in him. And then get this. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. I've shared with you before my, my athletic woes of high school, so forgive me for sharing with you, them with you again. But in high school, I was not chosen to play on the baseball team several years in a row. I was not chosen to play on the basketball team several years in a row. I was not chosen to play on the men's volleyball team, which was brand new. That was a low point, right? Just one year, that's all I could take. I was done. I was not chosen for the honor society. I wasn't chosen to be in the choir, believe it or not. I wasn't chosen to be homecoming king or prom king. I wasn't chosen for anything. But guess what? I was chosen by the one who matters most. I was chosen by the God of the universe. I don't mean to brag, but I must be pretty special to God. If you're a Christian, you should walk tall. You have been chosen by God. This is such good news of great job, joy. God has not merely accepted you. God has chosen you to be his. You know, when we do weddings up here, the husband, the man will say to the woman, vice versa, I choose you to be my husband. I choose you to be my wife. And it is a great celebration. You have been chosen by another. Christian, you have been chosen by the God of the universe. Rest, relax, rejoice. You have been Chosen by God. Christians become Christians because they are loved by God and we love him in return. Christians are Christians because they have been chosen by God and we choose him in return. Finally, Christians are Christians because they are empowered by God. Look at verse four with me again. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power. Greek word dunamis, dynamite, in power. And in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. 
What Paul is saying is that there are two ways the gospel comes to us, okay? First, the gospel has to come to us in word, in the message of the gospel. And the message of the gospel is very simple, and it is that Jesus has come into the world, lived a perfect life. He has taken on our sin, paid for it on the cross, so that we are now innocent before God. He has died on our behalf, risen on the third day to give us newness of life. He ascended into heaven, and he's coming back again and will make all things new. That is the gospel. The gospel first has to come to us in word, but for a true Christian, the gospel has to come in a second way. The gospel has to come in power and conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the gospel is like dynamite that explodes in our soul. It shatters our life. It turns our heart and our world upside down. It changes our affections, our passions, our desires, our calendars, our checkbooks. It changes everything when it comes in power. My brother-in-law, Trish's brother, Tim, uh, he grew up playing sports, loved sports. Sorry, there's so much sports stuff here today. But, but he grew up playing sports, and uh, his dream came true. He got to go and play college football. And he got to be a running back in college. But then he got to his senior year. He was starting to run back, and, and something, something happened. Even though he was the starting running back, kind of his dream coming true, he decided to drop out of college football to go and share the gospel as a volunteer with local high school students. Now, not every Christian is called to do this, so please don't hear me say that. But why did he do that? Well, it's because the gospel had not only come to him in word, it had come to him in power. It exploded in his soul. It shattered his life. It turned his heart upside down. It gave him new passions and joys, a new mission in life. Friends, you have probably heard the gospel. You just heard it just a few minutes ago. But have you experienced the power of the gospel? Has it turned your priorities and your passions, even your pain and your pleasure upside down? Why is a Christian a Christian? Because of God. Because of God. And because it is God's love, God's choosing, God's power, it means that it is not unstable, that it is certain, that it is true forever and for always. Let me with this. Maybe, maybe you're here today knowing I'm not a Christian or maybe you're discovering you're not a Christian, which is a gift of God, believe it or not, to know that. And you want to say yes to God, but you're worried you're worried that you can't become a Christian because maybe God has not loved you or chosen you to become a Christian. If that's you today, let me say two things. First, be encouraged. You have been chosen to be here this morning. The fact that you came here this morning was not an accident. It was not your whim. God had predestined that you would be here this morning before the foundation of the world that you could hear the good news of the gospel. Be encouraged by that. Second thing is this. God has never once in the history of the world ever turned anyone down. Anyone and everyone who has repented and trusted in Jesus has been accepted by God and saved by God. Every single person. He has turned no one away ever who has trusted in Christ for their salvation. And so if you want to become a Christian, this is a work of God. The famous American Bible teacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, who lived till 
1960, often used an illustration to help explain this, okay? He asks people, well, I'll just say, imagine a cross, okay? Just like that cross, really, but a really, really big cross. Imagine a really, really big cross, okay? And in the front of the cross, there is a door, all right? And above the door, there is a sign. And the sign is from Revelations, and it says, whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come. There's an open door saying, whosoever will would want to come can come through the door. Those who choose to walk through that door will enter on the other side, and they will look back, and above the door there will be another sign. And on that sign it will say, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It is then that that you will know that those who have made a decision of Christ, God has made a decision for them in eternity past. If you're here today and you are a Christian, rest and rejoice. You are loved by God, chosen by God, empowered by God. If you're here today and you aren't a Christian, come to Christ. He has brought you today to hear the good news of the gospel that your life might be turned upside down with great joy. Let's pray. Lord God, we are, we're so thankful uh, that you have, for some reason, chosen us to love us, to put your grace on us, because uh, we would never choose you. We would never seek you. The things of the world are so attractive, we would have forsaken you, and yet you have saved us to yourself, which means that our salvation isn't shaky, that it's sure, that it's firm, and that we can rest We can rest in your arms. We can rest in your love. We can rest in your choosing. Help us to to leave here walking tall, knowing that we have been chosen and loved by the creator of everything. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.